We're doing the book of Isaiah this spring. And, of course, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. We can't do them all. But this is a chapter I think it very important for us to talk about. Because one of my concerns as a pastor, and now having been a pastor of college students for at least 15 years, at least in an official capacity, um, I'm very concerned because I meet with students all the time who I think have gotten some very shallow and, you know, really wrong-headed teaching about how to know if they really are a child of God, if they really have a relationship with God. I think way too many people depend upon feeling God's love as the criteria for whether or not they should think of themselves as a Christian. And so when they don't feel like um, God is pleased with them or they don't feel the love of God, it causes them to go into a real tailspin in a lot of times. And... Um, uh, what's interesting about that is that for, for many, many years, for probably most of Christian history, mature Christians really regularly thought, and I think for good reason, based on the Bible, that one of the things that God used to grow you into being more than just a baby Christian is sort of a sense of him pulling away from you to draw you into a deeper level of relationship that's based on more than just feelings. And yet, in our day and age, so many people thinks, think that feelings are really how you know if God likes you, and therefore you see that like what you're hoping for often by the time you get into college is something that God is actually working at cross-purposes to. And if you don't understand that, it can make for a really miserable existence. Now, we get to this passage in Isaiah 63, and you remember uh, the context. The whole second half of the book of Isaiah is written to people whose world has fallen apart. They were God's people who he had brought into the promised land. He had instructed them to build a temple where they offered sacrifices, where they worshipped the Lord. They were his special people in his place. And yet they turned away from him and gave their love to other gods and to other things. And in his tough love, one of the things he does is he sends them out of the land. But it's hard for us to understand what a big deal that was and how it was a huge crisis of faith. I don't know if you've ever had what you might call a crisis of faith. But imagine if God had said, I'm your God, and I'm going to bring you into this land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to meet with you here in this place in the temple. See, we live after Jesus has come, and he's died, and he's risen again. And so Christians are very much sort of acclimated to the idea that there's not a particular place where we worship God. But in the Old Covenant, there was a particular place where you worshiped God, and now God's people aren't in that place, and they can't possibly get back to that place. And so it makes them question their whole relationship with God. It makes them question whether or not he really was God. It makes them question whether or not they've outsinned his love. Because as far as their circumstances go, there is nothing to convince them that God still loves them. Everything they're experiencing says to them, you have screwed up so bad that you have no hope of God ever wanting to be 
related to you again. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And, you know, Isaiah 40 starts with these words, spoken to these people whose lives are in just complete turmoil. With these words, Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort ye my people. So God cares to speak words of comfort and encouragement to them. But what's interesting is you go through the second half of the book of Isaiah, these words that were written for people who are in the middle of this exile, away in this land they didn't want to be in, in the middle of that begins to be even more clearly revealed that return from exile is not the ultimate good news. That God has prepared something even bigger and even greater. Because while God's people may think that the biggest problem in their life is that they're no longer in the place where they can worship God, they may think that their biggest problem is they're in exile. In reality, the biggest problem is what sent them into exile. Their unbelief. And the way they have scorned God's love and his patience. And exile, the exile is not going to fix that problem. No amount of punishment... No amount of slapping their wrists, even sending them into exile, is not going to change their hearts. God is revealing in the second half of Isaiah that he is going to do something that nobody would have dreamed of. He is going to send one who will be the suffering servant. One who is God himself in human flesh who will live the life that God's people are supposed to live. And then will die the death that the enemies of God deserve. This and only this can change the hearts of God's people. And if it wasn't for the exile, I think that God's people would think that all they needed was a little more instruction. Or a little course correction. But God is revealing to them, no, this This sin in your heart is a huge deal. And it requires very serious medicine. Now here in Isaiah 63, we get a further taste of the kind of length that God will go to to deal with our sin and our unbelief. And it's really going to challenge most people who've grown up in America who've thought about Christianity, who've experienced Christianity, and for whom Christianity has been sort of just a thing you were kind of born into or sort of slid into without much, without much effort. Because the God who reveals himself here is a God who is very uncomfortable to people who are used to thinking that God exists for us. Most American Christians, I believe, feel that God should be thrilled if we throw him a bone every now and then. But the idea that we should fall on our feet before him and plead with him to not wipe us out of existence like we deserve, we just don't have that kind of idea of God. We don't think of God as a holy God. We think of God as a God who needs to explain himself to us. C.S. Lewis put it memorably in an essay called God in the Dock. In the English um, court system, the dock is where the defendant sits. And he talked about the problem with modern man. He said, really, for most of human history, everybody, whatever culture, basically thought that God is on the judge's bench 
and man is in the dock and has to answer to God. But something curious happened in the 20th century. The roles got reversed. And most modern people assume that God is in the dock and he has to give an account that satisfies us for why he's done what he's done. We come to Isaiah 63 and we find that God does not fit in the dock. God does not, God does not um, seek to justify his existence to us. Instead, God operates in ways that really blow our minds. So come to this passage, if you will. It's in Isaiah 63, verse 7. The fascinating thing about this passage is it starts out sounding so great. It starts out with a verse that, that we, we, you could have used as the call to worship. And if you'd cut it off from the rest of Isaiah 63, we would have been all happy. But then it takes a real left turn and draws us out into the deep water that's over our head. So we're going to pray and then we're going to pray that God will help us so that we drown, don't drown. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely these are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence Save them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet, if only it ended in verse 9. But of course, this is a real story. And, and, and real stories in this world don't end with verse 9. Yet, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy. And he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? Who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown? who led them through the depths. Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance, For a little while your people possessed your holy place. They mean the temple. But now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old. But you've not ruled over them. They've not been called by your name. 
Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure. O Lord, do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would have grace to enter into this passage and for it to enter into us. May we discern your heart for us and may we see Jesus in this passage that we could be encouraged as well as humbled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you define the kindnesses of God. That's a pretty crazy thing. I mean, Isaiah experienced all this stuff that he's talking about, and yet still has the audacity to talk about the kindnesses of the Lord. And when you start out this passage, you may be thinking about kindnesses of the Lord in a certain, certain way, but by the time you get done this whole section your idea of the kindness of Lord has probably been blown to smithereens. If I told you that we were going to talk tonight about the kindness of God, I don't think any of us would have went through this list of things that demonstrate God's kindness. But this, indeed, is the kindness of God manifest. Which makes us scratch our heads and wonder... What? I mean, there are some things that are obvious. The kinds of kindnesses that we all would sort of check off and say, yep, that's a kindness of the Lord. Awesome. But then there are the less obvious demonstrations of his kindness. And then we have to ask this question, why does he fight against us? And finally, what does it accomplish? So that's what we're going to look at here. The obvious demonstrations of his kindness. Let's start with those. That's the fun part. His deeds. Tells in verse 7, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel. Our God is not a God who just sits up in heaven and tells people what to do. He is a God who acts. He is a God who acts in deeds of redemption and salvation. As the passage goes down here, you find the ultimate manifestation up to this point in time 
<coughs> of God's kindness expressed in deeds was the Exodus. And it's described even as something that was unexpected. Yeah, I could use that water. That'd be great. Um, it's something that was unexpected. They were, they were dead in all, for all intents and purposes. They were in bondage in, in Egypt. They had no hope. And God sends somebody to save them. Moses, you remember him? He got off to a great start, didn't he? He kills a Hebrew. No, he kills an Egyptian, right? So he, he fails. The first attempt to deal with the Egyptian problem, he takes matters in his own hand. He kills an Egyptian. His own people don't want him. They mock him. He goes running out into the desert for 40 years. And then God says, hey, why don't you go back and speak to these people? He says, what? Do you not remember, God? You made me. I've got a stuttering problem. I can't speak. Not only that, but nobody wants to hear me because I murdered an Egyptian. God says, no, go. I'll, I'll let Aaron speak for you, and I'll be with you. Go. So he goes. Do you remember how things go? He goes and he tells that Pharaoh. God says, let these people go, that they may worship me in the desert. Pharaoh's like, yeah, right. So Moses does all these different signs and these plagues. You remember what Israel thinks about that? They say, go away. You're making it worse. Right? And yet, as it turned out, through the most unlikely of men and the most likely of means, God delivers his people in a way that no one could mistake. God was at work. He did it. Never before has a people crossed through on dry land. You remember when they're wandering in the, in the desert, when they enter into the promised land, all the people there know what happened. You remember when they talked to Rahab? I don't know if you know this story. She's like, look, we know what happened. We know about your God. We know how he delivered you from the Egyptians, the most powerful nation the world had ever seen. So God had demonstrated his kindness in huge ways that there could be no doubt that he was a God of action. The problem is, so often, the only kind of action that we count as his kindness are when he acts according to our will. When he does the kinds of things that we want him to do, then we're quick to notice, oh, wow, that was really kind of God. But the second obvious demonstration here is his compassion. Verse 9 is one of my absolute favorite verses in the entire Bible. Drink in these words. In all their distress, by that he means his people's distress, in all their distress, he too was distressed. Do you know that God feels every pain that you feel? Do you know that Jesus could have died as an infant, as, an, as a sinless infant, and paid for your sin. But Jesus lived for 33 years, learned obedience, the book of Hebrews says, through suffering, and became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The book of Hebrews says, we have a high priest, namely Jesus, who can empathize with us because he has been tempted in every way that we have. And he has been betrayed 
and he has been abused and shamed and humiliated and sinned against in every way. You know that Jesus is distressed in your distress. And that is so comforting to know that when you cry out to him, you're not crying out to one who can't understand what you're talking about. And not only that, he, 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 he gives us at times his tangible presence, right? In all their distress, he too was distressed, it says, and the angel of his presence saved them. Literally in the Hebrew it says, the angel of his face. Presence is a good translation, but face is even richer. Because what it's saying is that he turns his face and shines it upon us. And we feel his pleasure at times. Not only that, it talks about how he lifted up his people and carried them all the days of old. He carries us even when we can't walk sometimes. Some of us have known experiences of the tangible presence of God that are undeniable. And they are glorious, tangible confirmation that he is a kind God. Not only that, he gives us an obvious demonstration of his kindness and he reveals his heart for us. You think, what a remarkable thing that God tells us how he feels and why he does things. God never wants you to think of him as capricious and acting on a whim. And so he tells us in verse 9, in his love and mercy he redeemed them. It wasn't because he was lonely and he wanted people to be with him forever. It was because of his love and his mercy. It wasn't because he felt bad that the world had fallen into sin and so he felt a little guilty and he felt he better fix it. No, it was because of his love and his mercy. God does not leave you to need to speculate why he does what he does. He reveals his heart because it's important that you know his heart, not just his deeds, not just his tangible presence. You need to know his heart and so he shares it with you. His love and his mercy compel him. His heart is fully engaged in saving his people. Yet in spite of all that, his people turn away from him and grieve his Holy Spirit. And that shouldn't surprise us because we do the same thing all the time. We have all of these same demonstrations of his kindness, his deeds, his compassion, his presence, his heart revealed. And even more so because we have Jesus who is the embodiment of the heart of God. We have Jesus whose deeds surpass anything that you could ever think of happening in the Old Testament with the Exodus. We have Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit to be another comforter and yet we still turn away from him to other lovers and to other saviors that we think are more reliable and more faithful than God. But does God throw his arms up in despair and say, that's it? I have done as much as anybody could be expected to do. I have revealed my heart to these people. I've done everything required for their salvation. If they still don't respond, I'm done with them. I don't know what to do with them. No. No. Now we enter into graduate school. We enter into the less obvious 
demonstrations of his kindness, but no less demonstrations of his kindness. Verse 10, he fights against his people. What? Do you have a big enough view of God that it can encompass him fighting against his own people? And they go, he goes out of his way to say, the Lord himself fought against them. He doesn't just send a henchman to do it. The Lord himself fights against them. Why? Because God will not allow his people to live life like he doesn't matter. And it's not because God is insecure. And he needs worshipers so he feels good about himself. No, it's because Life, the abundant life that Jesus talked about, can only be found through a deep and abiding relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so whenever we turn away from that, how can he not do something about it? I mean... If you see a little child run into the street, I hope, especially if it's my child, that you will run out there and do something about it. But you know what? I don't think any of you will be mad enough to spank them. But I will. You know why? Because I love those kids to death. And I can't possibly watch when they do something that threatens to destroy them. I can't do that. What kind of father would I be? It's one thing to just go rescue them. But they need to know that what they've done can destroy them. And they need to know that that kills me. Do you believe that you have a heavenly father like that? Not just a father who comes to the rescue and then says, ah, don't worry about it. It's sort of my job. You know, that's what I do. I rescue. You get yourself in a jam. You ask me. I come rescue you. Makes me feel good about myself. Makes you, you know, get out of your jams. It's a great little relationship. No. No, God says, you need to know that this kills me because it's killing you. Now, how does this fit in? How does this fit in with the gospel? I mean, the precious truth that Jesus took God's wrath and drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs at the cross. How does this idea of God fighting with his people fit in with that? I'll tell you how. God fights against us because he's fighting for us. The the great tragedy is that so often we reduce the love of God to being something that he will do exactly what we want when we want. And maybe some of you have relationships with your parents that operate that way. But I know that if you do, you're deeply insecure. I remember seeing a, 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 um, a supermodel one time, back before Oprah, they had the Phil Donahue show. Some of you, you guys are too young to remember Phil Donahue. But Phil Donahue was interesting. He was a character. But he, um, one time I saw that they had this supermodel on there, and she'd had her first child. And I think at this point her child was like five or six, and she was talking about how she literally had built a padded room for this child so that the child would not have to have any limits 
They wouldn't hurt themselves, but they could do anything they wanted in this padded room. I thought, this is crazy. I tell you what, I don't know much, but I know that those kids will be the most screwed up kids you've ever met. The most insecure kids. Because if you never have any limits, you always doubt whether the person really cares about you. Right? We don't have to worry about that in the gospel. God fights against us, doesn't let us live apart from him because he's fighting for us. He doesn't fight just so that we could go to heaven one day. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is not that because of what Jesus did, you don't have to worry about where you're going to end up when you die. Guys, don't truncate the gospel to that. It's so much bigger than that. It's that God, the Father who created you to be in a relationship with you. Look, it talks about in the book of Genesis, it says that he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and fellowshiped with them. And God is not satisfied for anything less He wants to be in a relationship with you, a deep, abiding relationship with you, where you know his heart and he knows your heart. It's not just about sending Jesus to die for you so that you can go to heaven someday. It's about bringing you into a relationship with him. He's fighting for that. He's fighting for you to be made in the image of his son and for all of your fear and your unbelief to be ripped out of your heart. And the only thing that has power to do that is the love of Jesus. And so God is going to do whatever it takes to get that love deep into your heart. And one of his most powerful tools is to fight against you. This is the gospel, that he loves you too much to let you stay as you are. He fights for your good because he has already fought Jesus in your place. Sometimes he does remove his tangible presence from his people. Why? There's lots of reasons. I gave you that little outline on spiritual desertion for you to ponder and consider some of them. Sometimes you don't know, but I will tell you this. It's always to draw you into a deeper connection with him. It's hard for us to grasp this, though, because we're so used to thinking of God in a real mechanical way, where if we do the right things, he'll give us what we want. So we need to consider, why does he fight against us? And I would say the first reason is because fighting with us is typically how he does his greatest work in us. I love this quote from Dan Allender. He's a Christian counselor. Some of us uh, older guys have been studying his book, Cry of the Soul, about our emotions. It's a great book if you're looking for a summer read. But one of his other really, really great books you should read sometime is called Bold Love. It's about how to love difficult to love people and how to strategize how to love and forgive people. It's great. He says this at one point in this book. He says, God seems to honor struggle. He wants his people to strip down to the flesh and do battle with him. He blesses even the one who fights against him as long as the fight is with him for the sake of knowing him and being known by him. In my fury and hatred against God, I still suspect that God will destroy me. In fact, he should. His plan instead is merely to cripple me. To mark me with his awesome handiwork of brokenness, weakness, and poverty. The creator God who dwells in majesty and glory walks with the marks of shame in his hands and side and invites me to bear the same honor. It is in this contest that I understand the message of the gospel. Do you remember when Jacob wrestled with God? God wrestled with him all night. 
And when Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me, he merely touched Jacob's hip and put it out of joint. Do you understand that God, because Jacob understood it was God, right? He said, he named the place, I have wrestled with God. (laughs) So he understood he was wrestling with God. God had the power to obliterate him, but he held back. He only wrestled with enough power so that Jacob had to keep wrestling. And then he shows that at any moment, he could put his, his hip out of joint, and he was never the same again. In fact, God even changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means one who overcomes or one who wrestles. Or, you know. it, it was to mark Jacob forever. Have you understood this? Do you have a big enough view of God that is willing to consider that he might love you so much that he's willing to fight with you? And while that idea may not be real comforting, consider the alternative that God doesn't really care about how you live. God fights against us to drive us back to the remembering the gospel. Look at where it goes. When God fights against them, look what it says in verse 11. Then his people recalled the days of old and they longed to know God as Savior in the powerful way that they had known him before. And they cry out to him, down in verse 15, they begin to pray and say, God, where are you? God fights against us, not just to prove to us that he's superior. No, God fights against us to drive us back to the gospel. He will not allow us to live in a fantasy world where we try to manufacture this world where we can pretend that we don't need God. Uh, in that book that the guys have been reading, uh, Cry of the Soul, it talks about how shame, one of the things that shame does is it makes you sort of retreat into this numb kind of fantasy world where you think you can be free from the pain and demands of living in this world, this real world. But God will not allow you to live there. It's not real. The real world is full of pain And the real world is a world in which God has engaged you to be a part of his solution. And he won't let you just sort of check out. He will enter into your world and mess with you. And that's good news. That's part of the kindnesses of God. Turn the page over if you're following this outline. See, God knows that, you know, sometimes... We have to taste and see that he is good, the Bible says. But I believe very firmly that sometimes the best way to taste and see that he is good is to taste what it's like when he's not there. To taste and see how bitter it is when all you have are your false gods and your idols and they're powerless to do anything to help you. Allender puts it this way. When I worship an idol the idol of looking good or being bright or attaining power. I have put my hope in a God that has no power to rescue and redeem. That's not a problem until I need to be saved. (laughs) Once I need help after spilling coffee, as I did even on my shirt today, or speaking poorly and I expose the fact that I can't really maintain the, the perception that I am good and that I'm cool and that I've got it all together. Once All of that's exposed. The God that I created sits silently in its inactivity. It mocks my cry for help. When God removes his presence and lets you taste, how faithful really is your people pleasing? 
How faithful really is your attempt to stock up money in the bank? I heard a preacher talk about a billboard that he saw recently that said, um, if you save your money, it will save you. Now, that's pretty bold. But so many of us live with that idea, even if we wouldn't say it that way, even if we wouldn't put it on a billboard or a bumper sticker. Well, what does God's fighting accomplish in this passage? Look at what it does to him. First thing, they have to stop and reflect and cry out, where is God? And you may think, oh, no, gosh, tell people that, and they aren't going to want to become Christians. You know what? Honestly, I care a lot that you would come to know Jesus and the beauty that he is but not enough that I would lie to you about what it's like to have a relationship with him. I am not going to pretend that having a relationship with God means that you'll always be happy. As a matter of fact, coming into a relationship with God may make your life more miserable than it's ever been. But I promise to you, I promise you, you will know love and peace and joy and security like you never dreamed was possible. And often, the same things provoke both of those (laughs) That's the, that's the craziness. Sometimes it's the stuff that, that you take on because of the gospel that both makes you more miserable than you ever thought you would be. Jesus talks about eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. <laughs> Whatever that means. But it doesn't sound good. <laughs> but often, often, those things that you think are the worst results of you coming into a relationship with God are often the very things that bring you the kind of peace and joy and knowledge of the love of God that you never could have experienced any other way. It's not a bad thing to have to stop and reflect, where is God? See, so many people think that God has abandoned them when, in fact, they've turned away from God. And they've not, he's not abandoned them. In fact, he's more present than he's ever been. He's just present in a way that they don't like. And so they want to say, well, he's obviously not present. This is, what, this is what people thought when Jesus was hanging on a cross. God's not here. Of course God was there. God was pouring out his wrath on the Son of God in the place of his people. He was doing his most powerful work. Right? The problem is so often we start with our circumstances and then we try to understand what God must be like based on our circumstances. But the way of the Bible and the way of wisdom is always to start with what God has revealed about who he is and that must be the grid for you to interpret your circumstances. Uh, Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, some call the prince of preachers. I love this quote from him. Um, He was a man who suffered greatly from the gout as well as many other ailments. But the gout in particular was his most grievous affliction. Suffered with it for 30 years, so that for three, four, five months every year, he basically was on a bed, racked in pain. And he says this, Oh, said a worldling to me, when I was in great pain and bodily weakness, is this the way God treats his children? Then I am glad I am not one. How my heart burned within me, and my eyes flashed As I said that I would take an eternity of such pain as I endured sooner than stand in the place of the man who preferred ease to God. I felt it would be hell to me to have a doubt of my adoption. And whatever pain I might suffer was a trifle so long as I knew that the Lord was my God. What does he mean, my adoption? The Bible says in Hebrews 12 that if you never suffer, you have 
great reason to wonder whether you really are a child of God because God disciplines those he loves. Rather than us thinking that discipline proves he doesn't love us, it is the proof that he loves you and that you're his true child. And Spurgeon says, don't think, don't think that I enjoy this pain, but don't you dare think that I would trade the precious, secure knowledge that I'm his adopted child for the kind of ease that you want. Now that's, that's deep water there. That's why I quote other people when I get to this stuff, because I'm not there yet, right? God's people cry out to him in prayer. That's the other result. Not only do they have to cry out, where is God? But they cry out to him in prayer, and they pray huge praise. Now again, does God make them miserable to manipulate them into praying? No. Prayer is what they were made for. They were made, you and I were made to converse with God on a regular basis, to share matters of mutual concern with him. And so when God's people are brought to cry out to him, to rend the heavens and come down and demonstrate his kindness and his mercy, that's what we were made for. You never find yourself more human than when you're crying out in complete dependence to God. It's what you were made for. Then God's people are brought to repentance. They're brought to repentance. And they begin to see that even their righteous deeds are filthy rags. Isaiah uses a real graphic image there. The imagery for filthy rags here is a, is a used, bloody menstrual cloth. And if you know anything about what the Jews thought about blood, how it made them ritually unclean, he couldn't have thought of a more graphic image. Do you really think that the best things you've ever done are like used menstrual cloths in the presence of God? One of the ways that you'll come to see that is when God removes his presence and you really taste your sin and your unbelief in your heart. When you really find that maybe so much of my love for God was because he keeps bringing me the kinds of things I want. Maybe God wants to draw you to a deeper place a deeper place where you would begin to say, even my good deeds are like filthy rags in your sights. But Lord, you still call me your people. This is inconceivable. Even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags, yet you call me your people. And I can call you Father. And you would never get to a deep appreciation of what that means, how amazing it is. See, I think one of the reasons Christianity is so weak and powerless in our world is because people take it for granted. And it's not until you see your righteous deeds as filthy rags that you really begin to understand what a big deal it is to be able to have a God who says, you are my people and I am your father because we don't deserve it. We think we deserve it. Sometimes he has to remove his presence for you to see how wretched you really are. And then you begin to understand what a big deal it is for this holy God to love you. And then, of course, how much more can we see the answer to this prayer to rend the heavens and come down? You know, Moses, it says here, had the arm of power next to him or with him. But as we saw in Isaiah 53, the most clear passage in the Old Testament about Jesus coming to die on a cross for his people, that is the arm of the God revealed. Moses had the arm of God with him. In Jesus on the cross, we see the arm of God revealed. 
The heavens were rendered on Calvary when the Father poured out his wrath on his only Son. Talk about doing something unexpected. Nothing can begin to compare to the cross. Talk about definitively answering this prayer to remember the sins of his people no more. Jesus accomplished that. This prayer was answered. What Jesus did on the cross, God says, took your sin and cast it as far away as the east is from the west and washed us white as snow. So, in conclusion, the death of Jesus has to factor into how you think of the kindnesses of God. And when you think about that, and when you think about what God has made you for, and how he's not, he's not going to stop until he makes you like his own son, it changes and turns upside down your idea of the kindnesses of God. And what you have to wrestle with is, are you interested in worshiping a God like this? Or do you want a God who just comes in and blesses and ratifies your plans and your agenda for your life? And that's not a light question. That's a question you really need to wrestle with and pray to God that he would show you what's really in your heart of hearts and then pray that he would rescue you from what's in your heart of hearts and he would redeem you and he would give you a new heart because it's what we need. It changes the way we look at pain. Two last quotes and one story and we're done. Spurgeon says, I can truly say of everything I ever tasted in this world of God's mercy, and my path has been remarkably strewn with divine loving kindness. I feel more grateful to God for the bodily pain I have suffered and for all the trials I've endured of various sorts than I do for anything else except the gift of his own dear son. I am sure that I have derived more real benefit, permanent strength, growth in grace, and every precious thing from the furnace of affliction than I ever derived from prosperity." worth pondering. Second, it changes how we look at things we don't understand. Old friend of mine, Paige Benton, wrote this article when she was nearing 30 and still single. It's a great article called Singled Out by God for Good. She said, accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on celebration of the life he has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I should not want, I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. How do you get to the place that Paige has gotten to? By being convinced that not only are the kindnesses of God some of the things that he does, and then the unkindnesses are over here, and you're hoping the kindnesses outweigh it. No, it comes from seeing that everything is a kindness of the Lord. If it drives us, and it intends to drive us to the gospel. We sang that song, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. I love that hymn, but that story behind it is tragic. It has that line in there about how he crossed all my fair designs. But do you know what's remarkable is the hymnal that that first appeared in was called The Only Hymns. It was written by John Newton and William Cooper. And William Cooper was a brilliant poet and his friend, but also somebody that struggled with depression and even insanity at times. And they planned together to write a hymnal and they divvied up who would write which hymns. And they set on their work. But before they got very far, Newton writes all this in the preface to The Only Hymns. Before they got very far, William Cooper went insane. And he never recovered. He died in an asylum. And John Newton said he was so discouraged. 
And he said that before we had gotten very far, God saw fit to cross our fair design. So he doesn't write that hymn lightly. He writes that hymn out of the experience of planning a hymnal. A hymnal that gave us hymns like Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And there is a fountain filled with blood. And how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. And glorious things of thee are spoken. And on and on and on and on. Some of the most glorious hymns. Let us love and sing in wonder. We would have never had any of them. Do you think that it was a good plan of theirs to write this hymnal? Yes. But God saw fit to cross their fair design. And Newton said he was so discouraged, he put the project aside and thought he could never finish it. But finally he did. And I'm so glad that finishing it meant writing that hymn that draws us into much deeper waters of wrestling with who is this God that sees fit to do things in a way we never would have conceived And it shouldn't surprise us because this is a God who sent the innocent Savior, Jesus, to die a torturous death on a cross because nothing else would do to sever us from our sins. Let's pray together.